Hey, if, you, if you're like, try to boil down what are like some of the greatest motivators that you could find in this life, the one that I think would have to be at the top of that would be hope. All right, hope would have to be like the top of the list. If you're trying try, try to put together like a five, top five, top 10 uh, list of what are like great motivators in life, hope would have to be one of them, right? And so here's a story that kind of depicts this in almost a negative sense, all right? So here, this is about this uh, swimmer called Florence Chadwick, all right? So she's this incredible swimmer back in the 50s. She was the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways, which is just mind-blowing to me. I don't know how you even fathom, like, I'm going to go do this, right? <laughs> well, she did that, and then 1952, she attempted to swim from the Catalina Island to mainline California. So Catalina Island's just off the coast of California. She's going to attempt to swim from that over to mainland California. And so she attempted to swim this big monstrous swim on a day that the weather was just awful. All right. So the weather was foggy. It was a really chilly day. And all the boats that were kind of going along with her as she is being accompanied by these boats, she could barely even see them. That's how thick the fog was. All right. And so she's out in the water and she's been swimming for 15 hours. 15 hours. I can't swim for 15 seconds. And she's swimming for 15 hours. And so as she's gone through this for 15 hours, she starts to beg the boats that she can barely see that are around her, just saying, hey, pull me up. I'm, I'm done. Like, get me out of this. This is miserable. My body aches. I, I can't go forward any further. Like, just relieve me of this terrible experience. And as she's pleading with these boats, her mom speaks out, I, I promise you, you're not far from the coast. Just keep going. I promise you, you're not far. And Florence just undeterred. Like, she's just done, right? You've got there before. If you work out, it's terrible, right? And so she's in the midst of, like, the worst workout that you could possibly fathom in this life. And so she's just done with it. And so they finally agree. They snatch her up out of the water. She gets brought into the boat. And as she gets into the boat, her stomach drops. Because as she gets into the boat, she's finally able to see what's ahead of her. And what she sees is that less than half a mile away is the coast, the destination that she was aiming for. And so as she, after this pit in her stomach, like stomach just kind of almost, dro almost drops out of her body. She goes to a news conference the very next day, and here's what she had to say. She says this, all I could see was the fog. It's speaking of like while she's in the water and swimming. And here's what she says, I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. The motivator of being able to see what was the goal, the destination, the hope of what she was aiming for would have allowed her to get that second boost of energy or maybe like the 10,000th 10, boost of energy that she needed to get to the shore. In essence, like mo the motivator here that she needed was hope, right? Like the fog was so thick that she couldn't see the shore. And so she just lost all hope of the destination that she was headed for. And if she could have just seen the shore, she would have kept going. So hope, like, man, it's just this really powerful motivator in this life. But not only is it like this great motivator, um, if you could really boil down to like what really makes Christianity different, 
What, what's the, if you could boil all of Christianity down to something that really makes it stand out above all the rest that you could cling to in this life, all these other religions, what is it that, well, the distinguishing marker is hope. It's hope. So here's what hope in our society looks like. It's wishful thinking, right? So it's like, I hope I get that for Christmas is what we think whenever we're little kids. But that's not how the Bible speaks about hope. The Bible speaks about hope as a profound certainty, a profound certainty. And so here's how good the gospel is, y'all. Here's how good the gospel is. The hope of the gospel is the profound certainty that we will be bodily raised from the dead. That's the hope of the gospel, that this hope that we cling to, this hope of the good news of Jesus is that there is actually in real time and human space going to be a bodily resurrection from the dead. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to spell out for us here in this passage that Eve read for us, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 34. And I think there's a few ways in our passage that Paul's trying to tease out this hope of the resurrection, all right? And I just want us to look at that. There's three different parts, three different hopes that I want us to just sequentially look at tonight. And I I just hope that it stirs something inside of you, all right? So here's the three, all right? The first one is that we have a hope of a great savior. That's the first one. The second one is that we have a hope of a great kingdom. And then the third one is that we have the hope of the Christian life. All right, so I just want to work through these. There's three different sections that I want us to work through. I'll try to tease it out for us, but man, it's just what Paul places before us is just profound. It's soul-stirring, and I pray that's what God does in us as we work through it tonight. So let me reread verses 20 through 22 so we can be refreshed, and then I just want to try to tease out some contrasts that are in here, right? So here's what verse 20 through 22 says. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So look, the first hope, of the resurrection that we find here in these three verses is that we have a great savior. There's a great savior of the hope of the resurrection, right? So here's what I want us to like, think about this with me. Compare who Jesus is with the authority and power of the time of Jesus' time as well as Paul's time, all right? So the words gospel and savior that we use so often for Jesus they weren't only used for Jesus at this point in time in human history, all right? They were also used of Rome's Caesar, all right? So what happened with Caesar Augustus is he goes and he wins this battle against Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And then what we get is like some, I have an example of an inscription that's written about the Caesar. And I want you as, I'm going to read this. It's a little bit long. All right. So bear with me. I'm sorry, but there's a lot of really good, deep stuff in here. And as I read this, like pay attention to some of the descriptors that are given of the Caesar Augustus so that we compare it to Jesus. All right. So here's, here's the inscription. The most divine Caesar, we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. 
For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward disillusion, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aspect. Literally, all of this fighting and these wars were happening. And at this war, he kind of put cease to war. He brought peace. And so it's like this new beginning that he brings. Caesar, the, mo- the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality, All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year, whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection. Whoa. And giving us the emperor Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as savior has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. The birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world, the beginning of the good news concerning him. Wow, right? Like those, did you notice some of the descriptors? that are used about Caesar Caesar here. You have divine, that he's God manifest. He's beginning of life. Literally uses the word gospel here, good news. At the very end, uses the word gospel. This is the gospel of Caesar Augustus, the good news that Caesar Augustus brought to the whole entire world. This is also worship, right? The way that they're speaking about Caesar, the way that they're teasing out the work that he's done, it is worship that they're bringing to this Caesar. Now, what I want you to do is I want to compare and contrast what we just read with what you see in verses 21 and 22 that Paul writes of this Jesus in the verses that we just read. So notice how strikingly different the gospel of Jesus is because it's this shorthand for what Paul does in Romans chapter 5 verses 12 and following in that chapter. He's teasing out like a lot more in full what he does in just a couple of verses here, but it's just in short like the gospel in a nutshell, all right? So here's what he says. For since death came through a man, Jesus, the resurrection, or sorry, Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, Jesus. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. All right, so if that's really confusing, which I'm with you, that is confusing. Here's a way that Matt Smethurst really kind of com- like compacts it and explains it. He says this, in Adam, we walked into the grave, and in Jesus, we walked out. That's what happens here in these two verses. So compare and contrast here what happens with the gospel of Caesar Augustus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is in short why the Christianity, one of the reasons why Christianity just explodes at the time of Rome, all right? So you have the gospel of Caesar Augustus that it's like, hey, he's ended all war. There's now peace in the land. But what's the experience that happens under the rule of Caesar Augustus? It's arrogance, it's corruption, it's abuse, it's injustice. He is the one that's supposed to be in control of all things, but the experience by the majority of those that are under his rule is everything that is just awful about this world, right? You have all this wealth, all these 
people, all these war horses, all this power that takes place, but then you still have so many people that are marginalized and at the, the sides of society, and he can't bring the whole together. And so in the midst of all of this, you have Jesus of Nazareth that comes in, and what, what is known about Jesus? What's known about Jesus, he does come with great power, Right? It's not that he's lacking in power. He does things that are done before people that people have never seen before. Miracles that are happening. He raises up Lazarus from the dead. He speaks with such great authority that people want to follow him. As he goes out into different cities, the crowds come out to him because of what the, the, the reputation of Jesus that goes before him in these different cities. And here's what people experience of him. Instead of arrogance, they experience humility. Instead of abuse, they experience sacrifice. Instead of corruption, they experience fairness. Instead of injustice, there's compassion. You have such a strikingly different experience of this Jesus of Nazareth than what you get from Caesar Augustus at this point in time. And so if you kind of think about all that's taking place here, you have this hope of the gospel that's coming. You have the hope of the gospel of Caesar that doesn't fulfill exactly what's being placed before all that are in the Roman Empire. And then in the midst of all this, you have the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is strikingly different. So in Caesar Augustus, the gospel of Caesar Augustus, you get a divine yet corrupt savior who demanded your life and devotion to him. But what you get in Jesus is you get an eternally good divine savior who laid down his life for you. That's what is contrasted here. And all of this is true because Jesus isn't dead. Jesus is the divine, good, eternally good Savior that can do everything for you that you could possibly ever want or imagine. All the deep down desires that you have in this life can be fulfilled in this Jesus, but this Caesar Augustus who has everything that the world would say the power of the world would need can't fulfill any of those hopes and desires. And so... I, there's a story from Civil War times that I think just like puts perfectly exactly what people probably experienced with this Jesus and why it exploded at the point in time, right? So at the time of Civil War, there's a story about um, this, this northerner who went down to a slave auction and he purchased a young slave girl. And as they were walking away from the auction, the man turned to the girl and told her, you're free, which is exactly what Jesus does for you, right? He sets you free. He breaks the bondage of sin in your life and he allows you to actually live the way that God has created you to live in this world. He sets you free. And with amazement, this little girl responded, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? And so this northerner man turns to this little girl and says, yes, he said. And she responds, and to be whatever I want to be. And she, he responds, yes. And whenever... And she like pushes it a little bit further and even go wherever I want to go. And he says, yes, yes, you can go. You can be whoever you want to be. You're free to do whatever you want to do. You're free to go wherever you want to go. And so um, here's what she says in response to it. She looked at him intently and replied, then I'll go with you. 
I think that's what happens inside of the people when they hear this good news of Jesus. Because they see the gospel of Jesus in contrast to the gospel of the Caesar Augustus. And they are pitting the two together. And they see how good this Jesus is and how much he can bring fulfillment to your life compared to the Caesar who can't fulfill his promises. And so as they look at their two options, they look at Jesus and say, I'll go with you. And that's the same thing that happens inside of us when our eyes of our heart are awakened to the good news of the gospel. The hope of the resurrection is that we have an incredibly great savior that can do everything that you could never do for yourself. We have a world, we live in a society that we are constantly looking for a hopeful figure, don't we? I mean, we have elections that are coming up and you have two different parties that are just trying to find the right person to place at their, at their party so that people can cling and hope to the America that they can bring. But look, we are the people that already have this great leader. We're the people that already have the great king. We're the people that already have this person that we look to who can fulfill everything that we could possibly want in life. And it's not just for the here and now, but it's for eternity, right? And this is all because of the hope that we have in the resurrection. Jesus is alive. He's seated at the right hand of God, which produces hope inside of you, Christian. All because the hope, the certainty that we have in this great savior, right? So I think this is what Paul's trying to draw out in these three verses, but he doesn't stop there. He moves on to verses 23 through 28, where he's spelling out the hope of a great kingdom that's to come. So not only do we have a great savior, a great king that we place our hope in, but he's bringing an even better kingdom than we could possibly experience in this world. Here's how Paul puts it, verse 23. But each in his own order. So talking about Jesus being the first fruits and what happens as a result of placing our hope in Jesus. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruit. So he's alive. He's been resurrected from the grave. Afterward, at his coming, his second coming, Jesus is coming back again, Christian. He's coming, all right? That's the hope. He is coming back for you. And at his coming, those who belong to Christ, whenever he comes back, you experience the bodily resurrection of the dead. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to, God, to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. There's a lot of subjection here. But what the point is, is that God is bringing a kingdom where he will be all in all. And through the authority and ruling of Jesus, all things in this world will be placed under his feet so that we will experience this God who is all in all. There will be no other. It will be a great, beautiful, eternal kingdom is what is happening here. All right, so the sequence here is really important, all right? 
Jesus is a resurrected from the grave. He's the first fruits. He's the one that we look to. He's the one that we place our hope in. And because we place our hope in Jesus and he's coming back for us, we will experience that bodily resurrection. It's happening. It's coming. It's what we hope to. It's what we hope in. We cling to this hope. And then the kingdom of God comes in full and Jesus obliterates all the rule, authority, and power. And here's the key for us, all right? Here's the key about his kingdom. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Death is done away with, all right? So if you're looking for like another reason why Christianity explodes at the point in time of the Roman Empire, it's this. The great problem of the Roman Empire is death. This Caesar Augustus that they worship, he dies. And in the midst of the Roman Empire, this one that's supposed to bring peace and bring everybody together, in the midst of all that he cannot control, he cannot save them from these massive pandemics that hit the urban centers at his point in time, all right? So there are multiple pandemics that happen throughout the Roman Empire, and it has this dramatic effect on the empire. There's significant death tolls that happen, and then people flee these cities. So these cities that are built for glory, these cities that are, that are built for transcendence, people have to flee them because literally there's brokenness and decay that happens at the core of them. And so naturally, these pandemics, they stir a bunch of questions, like just like ones that we probably were experiencing just a couple of years, a couple of years ago, as we experienced one of these heightened pandemics. Some of those questions look like this. How do we make sense of such tragedy and brokenness in this world? They look at what Caesar is bringing them. The promise that he brings is that he is coming and there is an, Rome is the answer to all the world's problems. But yet at the very heart and center of his kingdom, there's this brokenness and corruption and decay that's happening because of sickness that is inflicted these cities. The second question, what hope is there for an afterlife? All right, so you had all these different religions that were going on at this point in time, and all of them only gave you uncertain possibility dependent on your moral performance in this world. So you are constantly trying to make sure that you're living according to the values of whatever God that you worshiped at that point in time, and just hoping that once you pass away from this life, that you lived good enough to experience an even better life in the afterlife. And amid these pandemics and amidst all of these questions that are stirring on inside of these people, Christianity was growing and thriving. Why? Why? The hope of the resurrection. The hope that there was a better kingdom that death could not destroy. And that's the hope of the good news of the resurrection. That's the hope of the gospel, right? So here's what Kyle Hopper, he's a, a historian that has studied ancient pandemics. And here's what he says about the rise of Christianity, even in the midst of all these turmoils that are happening in the Roman Empire. He says this, again, it's another kind of lengthy one. Sorry. For Christians, it was a positive program. This life was always meant to be transitory and just part of a larger story. 
What was important to the Christians was to orient one's life towards the larger story, the cosmic story, the story of eternity. They did live in this world, experienced pain, and loved others. But the Christians of that time were called to see the story of this life as just one of the stories in which they lived. And here's the key, the hidden map was the larger picture. In essence, here's the map, the hidden map. It's the resurrection. It's the kingdom of God that's coming and entering into this world. We, have, we live with this idea that heaven is this place that we go immediately after death. But in Paul's mind, that's just the intermediary state. What truly is heaven is that we are bodily resurrected from the grave and that God brings his kingdom here to earth. And that we live with the true, divine, eternal, living God in brand new bodies and a brand new world that we never have to leave his presence. That is the kingdom that Paul has set his gaze on. We think about this place that we get to flee from this current life and that's heaven that we go to. Paul just says that that's what happens when Christians fall asleep. What heaven truly is, is when the kingdom of God comes into this world. And the good news of that kingdom is that it's already broken in. The good news of that kingdom is that this kingdom that will come in full when Christ comes again has already broken into this world and that we get to live within the hope of that kingdom here and now. So as our, bodily, as our bodies decay and waste away, what Paul says elsewhere is that our souls are being renewed day after day. That we get to live in the hope of this resurrection that's coming, which means in the midst of things like a global pandemic, things that are literally corrupting and decaying the core of society, that Christians would step in in the midst of that as people were fleeing and leaving. They were throwing all caution to the wind and they would go and help and serve the sick, those who were dying and oftentimes contracting that disease themselves and then passing away. Why? Because the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the kingdom. It gave them a completely different perspective in how they lived in this world because they did not view this life as a hoarder, but rather as the ability to give their life away because one was coming that was greater. You see it? Do you see that? This is hope, right? This is hope that this life isn't all that there is. These Christians lived differently because they had the hope of the resurrection, that there was a coming kingdom that was better than the one that you can find here. And so they lived differently because they were a people of hope. And here's how Ray Ortland puts it, and I think it's beautiful. It just kind of compacts and puts it all together. He says, Jesus' resurrection proves that heaven is not a disappointment we'll have to settle for, which is how a lot of people live in this life, right? It means we'll stop settling and we'll actually start living. That's what people experience with the hope of this resurrection, that there was a kingdom that was coming that was better than any kingdom that you can experience in this life, and it produced hope inside of them. Lastly, so it, it gives us the hope of a great savior, one, a better savior and leader than you could find in any other point in time in history 
anybody that we could find even here and now that we could place our hope in, we find that in Jesus. He's bringing in a greater kingdom than what could ever be experienced in this world, better than Rome, better than the United States. And then lastly, it's also the hope of the Christian life. All right, so we see this in verses 29 through 34. Here's what Paul says. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? This is kind of weird, all right? So uh, if the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? So what Paul is putting before them, it seems like there was a practice at this point in time that if someone passed away before they could be baptized, that Christians would be baptized in their place. Paul's not condoning this. He's just kind of bringing before an example of like, why would you even do this if there's no, if there's no resurrection? Weird, I know. We're not gonna practice this at Storyline, I promise. Like, if we're, this is not like something that we're gonna, hey, this is a great idea. No, we're not doing that. Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised... And this is a quote that he's placing before us. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And here's his like call to the church in Corinth, but also a call to us. Come to your senses and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. And I say this to your shame. So here's what I think Paul's trying to place before us here again with another string of like hypotheticals, right? He's placing before us the resurrection is the hope for the Christian life that we live here and now, all right? So here's what Dahati Lewis um, has said about this idea. The resurrection gives the Christian passion in this life. Here's how he describes passion. It's a willingness to endure the pain for something greater than the pain. Does that make sense? Endure something great. We endure the pain for something greater than the pain. So Paul demonstrates for us here that the Christian life is not one of ease, but actually endurance. All right. So think about all these questions that he places before us. Why are we in danger every hour? Why are we constantly being chased down and pursued because of this faith that we have expressed? Why do I face death every day? Why is there a great sacrifice and suffering that I have to constantly endure in this life? Why did I endure persecution in places like Ephesus? These, this place where there's a, a great outpouring of belief in the gospel, but then there's this massive riot that takes place. And why did I have to endure this if this resurrection isn't really a hope-filled thing. If it's not something that we can really believe is going to happen in the future, then why would I ever, per, why would I ever endure these things? Why would I endure great hardship and suffering and all of this? But then he goes even beyond that. Why do I even avoid sin? I mean, that's the basis of the quote that he gives here. Let us just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If there's not a resurrection, a bodily resurrection from the dead, then why do we even avoid sin? Like, why would we even live according to the, the call that Christ has placed on our life? If Jesus isn't alive, then why would we take seriously anything that he told us to do? Is essentially what Paul is trying to say here. This Christian life 
is all based on this resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus isn't alive, then you can just do away with everything that he's commanded us. But if Jesus really is alive, then you have to, you have to come to a decision on whether you're going to accept this Jesus and you're going to follow what he commands or you're going to completely ignore him and try to continue to live the life that you once lived. You have to make a decision. You cannot just continue in oblivion. You have to make a decision. That's what Paul is placing before us here. And the passion of the Christian life is that Jesus is alive. That Jesus is alive means that this Christian life now is worth living. That it is worth enduring hardship and suffering and persecution. That it is worth avoiding sin in this life. Because we have this hope in the midst of our hardship and our difficulty in this world that we cling to. And that's the bodily resurrection. And our greatest example of this is Jesus himself. All right. We get this because what is the cross of Jesus characterized as? It's called the passion of Christ, right? Why did Jesus endure the pain and suffering of the cross? He endured ridicule. He endured beating. He endured the, the shame that came with being put on a cross. Why did he endure all of this? It's because he knew what would lay before him, and that was the hope of the resurrection, right? Jesus died because he knew that the, dead, that the grave could not contain him. And whenever he rose from the grave, it meant glory, but it also meant reconciliation. And so Jesus, as he's facing his passion, Jesus, as he's facing suffering and persecution and death in this life, what pushes him through all of it? It's the hope of the resurrection, that I'm going to obtain what the Father has promised me that I will rise from the grave on the third day and that I will be the resurrected Savior of the world. And here's what that means. The joy of Jesus' heart is bringing reconciliation to you and the Father. He enjoys. It's the delight of his heart. It's the it's the heartbeat of his life that he gets to bring reconciliation between you, a dead sinner, and the living father. He knows that if I endure this persecution and this passion of the cross, that means that I will obtain brothers and sisters for all eternity. And he says, it's worth it. It's worth it. And so if we look for what is the passion of the Christian life, it's the example for us is the passion of Jesus Christ himself. We look at our Savior and what he went through, and we look at the hardships of this life, and we say Jesus went through it, and he clinged to the hope that he would be raised from the grave three days later, and we do the same thing. We cling to this hope that there is a bodily resurrection and we know that it is a fact that it is going to take place. It is certain because we look at our risen Savior who is alive and seated at the right hand of God and we can be certain that we too will be raised again one day. That's what sets us apart. That's what allows you to stare the most difficult challenges that you will experience in this life and say the Christian life is still worth it. That's what you do. So look, I don't even know if like it's the right word to say that hope is the greatest motivator because it seems so minuscule compared to everything that we find in the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We have this great, incredible Savior that we will spend eternity with that's done everything that we can never do for ourselves, that fulfills all of our hopes and desires in this world more than even the best leaders of this world could possibly even come and try to scratch the surface of what Jesus has done. He brings a kingdom that literally he puts death to death. He puts death in his grave. Jesus walked out. Death doesn't leave. Death stays in the grave. What Jesus brings is that we have this hope, this certainty, this passion in the Christian life, and we cling to this hope because we have a resurrected Savior that what happened to him is going to happen to us too. And so look, if it, I try to put all this together. I, I think one of the power of stories is that you can have like a way that all the story can bring like all that we've just worked through and bring it all together and kind of just bring this like elation in the soul, right? And so here's a story that I found that I think kind of draws this all together, all right? So um, one night after dinner, my father was trying to ra- relax in the den. And so he's like kicking it back. He's got his newspaper, long day at work, and he's just trying to like chill, right? Um, and continuously, he's interrupted by his son who wants to play, all right? So this is kind of like a terrible dad move, but <laughs> this is what he does. And so the dad just kept trying to occupy his son because he just wanted to like sit and read the newspaper, right? And so none of the things that he had placed to his son like actually worked. And so suddenly the dad thinks he has this stroke of genius. And as he's looking at the newspaper, he takes a page from the newspaper that has a full-size map on it and he just tears it to shreds. Tears it to shreds, small little pieces, and then he hands it to his son as a puzzle. And he places this challenge before his son. And he says, when you put this map of the world back together again, then I'll go and play with you. We'll go outside, we'll go play, and I'll, I'll do these things. And he thinks this dad is like, this stroke of genius is going to buy me a ton of time. And so I'm just going to be able to like sit back, read the newspaper, not have to worry. The dad assumed wrong. <laughs> And the boy comes back to his amazement just a few minutes later with the entire map taped back together. And so he's just shocked at what had happened and asked his son, how did you do this? How did you put this thing back together so quickly? And the little boy replied, well, it was easy. There's a picture of a man on the back. And when I got the man right, I got the world right too. <laughs> I'm having a hard time like, I, like uh, we were talking, we were praying in the back, and it was like when we get like excited or passionate, like start to cry. Like I'm about to cry. I'm trying to like hold this together. All right, like look, here's how good your Savior is. Look, when you get the right Savior, it pieces everything in this world back together again. Here's how great your Savior is. That whenever you get this Jesus, this great Savior, who can actually he. he he calls us to like the best thing in the world and it's just to come rest in him, right? Like the religions of this world are like, go do, go do, go do. And then maybe if you are good enough, then you'll have a better afterlife than what you experience in this life. But that's not what our Jesus does. Our Jesus who lives perfectly, the thing that he places before us is just come and receive my rest. Like, just come and taste of the joy and the grace and the rest that only I can give you. All these other religions, all these laws, they just tell you to go do and try to do the best you can and try to be the best person that you could possibly be. But here's the hope of the resurrection, the hope of our Savior who's alive as he just says, come and just receive my rest. Just come receive that. Like, I'm the best 
news that you could possibly have in this world. You don't have to clean up your life. I actually came to deal with all of that for you. I came to be the person that stands in your place and to pay the sacrifice that you can never pay for yourself. And it just gets better from that too. It's like this world that's broken and dealing with decay and these kingdoms that have all these big desires, all these big hopes, all these big dreams. We have this kingdom that's coming that Jesus, when he comes back again, he's gonna place it in cement and it's gonna be here for all eternity. He says, you're gonna rule with me. You're going to be with me forever. There's not going to be a sun anymore because my glory is going to shine so big and strong that it doesn't, there's not even a sun that's needed anymore. And death, it's done away with. There's no more pain. There's no more suffering. There's only just complete joy. There's just love that's experienced endlessly. This kingdom is better than you could ever imagine. Like the things that you try to place such high priority on in this life, man, they don't even compare. If you look at gold and silver and jewels, like the, the things that you're going to see in this kingdom, man, they don't even touch the surface. Like you, you can't even recognize them because of how pure and beautiful and just the wonder that you're going to experience in this kingdom. And look, in the midst of all the hardship of this life, it's going to give you the hope that you need to get through and endure and go through all the cancer and go through all the death and all the loss of the loved ones that you will lose in this life, all these things that make this thing so daggum difficult, you get a passion that nobody could ever take away from you. You know what I'm saying? That was a little hard, I'm sorry. But gosh, it gives you this passion, right? And it's all because if you get the man right, then the world, it comes together too. Look, the hope of Christianity is the hope of the resurrection. Jesus is alive. That means if you believe in him, you're alive too. And what you experience in part, one day you'll experience in full. Jesus is coming back again. He's your hope. The hope of the resurrection, it gets you through. It gets you through. Look, do you believe? Like deep down, like probably some of us have come into this room tonight and we're like, man, I just don't know. Like I look at what's going on before me in my life and man, it just feels like everything is wasting away. And I pray and I pray and I pray and it just feels like there's so many unanswered prayers in this world, in this life, and I'm just like waiting for God. Like, it even feels like I come to the scriptures right now. It just feels dry and mundane and dual. Like, are you, do you have that hope right now? Like, do you have that belief like deep down in the crevices of your soul? Because like, look, if you give up on the resurrection, as we looked at the passage last week, verses 12 through 19, literally everything else decays away too. Like, where else are you going to turn? Who else are you going to go to? Like, what other person can offer you hope like Jesus can offer you and then has done exactly what he was going to what he said he was going to do in human history and like actually brought it to fruition where else are you going to go so look like do you believe 
Here's the invitation. Like, if you're struggling, like, here's how big and, like, welcoming your God is, is he was willing to, like, take you in and take in your doubts and take you in in your hardships and take you in in, like, the, I just don't know right now, God. Like, you have a God that's big enough and welcoming enough and, like, loves you so, so much that he's willing to, like, come and just embrace you in the midst of the difficulty of it. And here's the hope of what we see throughout the rest of the scriptures is that throughout the rest of the scriptures, when it seems like God is absolutely void, that he's not here, he's always at work behind the scenes. He's always at work behind the scenes. And what is the hope of the resurrection is that when Jesus, like, as you, his disciples bring the question, like, how do we, how do we know? Well, like, when are you going to come back again? He gives like this, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. And that's exactly like what the hope of the resurrection does for us too in the midst of hardship and difficulty and all the challenges that we go through. It's like the hope comes in like a thief in the night. Even whenever you least expect it, like there's always, God is always at work behind the scenes. So like, look, press through. If you haven't believed yet, like come and to this Jesus because there's no one else that you can turn to that offers the hope that Jesus can offer you. And then like, look, Christian, if you're in that place, it's like, keep going. Keep going. Who else are you gonna turn to? When you get the man right, when you get the savior right, you get the rest of the world too. Let's pray.